Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 59th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Pitch Perfect. Uh, Stand out when you speak up. I'm joined by Debbie Kleiman. She is the author of First Pitch, Winning Money, Mentors, and More for Your Startup. The publisher is Babson College Publishing. Debbie is an award-winning marketer, educator, and mentor. She is now the managing partner of the Upside Angels, which invests in early-stage startups and provides strategic advisory services and coaching for founders. Before that, she was the executive director of the Arthur M. Blank Center for Entrepreneurship at Babson College. She was educated at Cornell University and has an MBA from Harvard Business School. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you so much, Dan. Absolutely. So give us a brief overview of this book, if you don't mind. Sure. So in my work at Babson and in the startup community here in the Boston area, I worked with thousands of entrepreneurs and watched many, many, many pitches go wrong. And what I saw was this thread that ran through all of this, which was the entrepreneur feeling really um, self-conscious and intimidated and overwhelmed by the process of telling the story of their startup. And the truth is, is that as an entrepreneur, you're going to pitch every single day of your life. Minute one, you're going to keep pitching for all kinds of things, whether it's you know money or mentorship or connections or even working with vendors, partners, and first customers. So I wrote the book because I really saw this very clear path to how to teach pitching to make it not overwhelming, to make it not intimidating, and really to help entrepreneurs feel great about telling their story and get excited to tell their story because, you know, it's such an important part of being successful with a startup. Absolutely. So you mentioned in the book that one of your credentials is you've listened to over 1,000 pitches. Uh, I assume quite a number of those are at Babson College where students, but is it also out in the entrepreneur community? Because obviously Boston has a pretty healthy slice of that. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, since I wrote the book over a year ago, that number is much higher. Okay. Um, so, yes, I've been mentoring entrepreneurs, um, both in university and college settings, um, as well as other types of settings, other types of accelerator programs um, around the country for a long time. And I'm also an angel investor. So I do get a lot of pitches come my way. I guess the the part of it that's really links all of those is that they're all really early stage pitches. So most of the pitches that I've heard and that I called my approach from are ones that are from early stage startups. Usually it's a first time founder who isn't knowledgeable about how to pitch and really wants to learn, or they're in the earliest stages of the startup. So there are a lot of unknowns. And so they have to kind of fill in that pitch with some other types of information because there's there's a ton of ambiguity still that's part of the startup. So 
Um, it's really that kind of pitch that I talk about in the book. And the book is really meant to be this a straight up how-to, super concrete, super practical, so that people can walk away with a set of activities and and steps that will actually get them there with a full pitch, ready to go and um, excited. Yeah, no, I, I think it does a really good job of that. And I certainly related since I started my own company. And I remember at one point doing a early pitch. It wasn't for VC money or anything, but uh, I was talking to a woman in in Phoenix and she said, just spit it out, Dan. What are you trying to sell me? And uh, that was my last phone call for the day. I had to take a bit of a walk on the beach and recover from that one, but uh, it made me stronger. didn't kill me off. Uh, before we go further, I have to say that this is one of the most charming dedication pages and on-message dedication pages I've come across. It says, for Brent, who gave the best pitch ever. Uh, it's safe yeah. to assume that Brent is a significant other. Yeah, Brent's my husband. And, um, you know, we were together for a very long time before he convinced me to marry him. And there was a lot of pitching along the way. And he was quite successful at at convincing me. Okay, well, I, I was tempted to ask for some of the details, but we, we will move on <laughs> in the interest of time. Um, really important. You mentioned that. And it's true. So much of our ways in which we make decisions, including investors, is on gut instincts. And, and you cited one point fairly early on in, the, on in the book that that comes down to things like, you know, emotions, that comes down to unconsciously received signals, uh, our instincts as human beings. In your expansive experience with this, what are some clues you are looking for, things that tell you, even before the pitch has gone very far, that this is a, a good pitch, this is going to be a problematic pitch? And we'll get to content and how you set up your 4-H framework in a bit, but just, you know, on an instinctive level. What are those, some of those things you're, you're looking for and watching out for? Well, so as I was mentioning at the beginning, the pitches that I'm trying to coach people on are these early stage pitches where the entrepreneur still has so many unknowns that they're not quite sure about when it comes to maybe their target customer or how to go to market. And so because of that, these pitches need to really showcase the founder as a really thoughtful um, knowledgeable person who can get it done. So investors and mentors at this stage are generally looking at the founder just as much as they're looking at the startup for clues that this person and this startup have something special, that they have a certain set of knowledge or connections or expertise that will make that will allow them to win. So a lot of the time in these pitches, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for a founder with that kind of it factor that you can know that they're going to bust through walls to make this startup come to life or a founder that understands the problem so well, either because they lived it or researched it or worked in it for so long that they have a distinct advantage over the rest of the people. Um, Another thing I look for is a certain level of confidence, and that confidence is what attracts other people to want to help that startup. It's related to that it factor, I guess, because um, you know building a startup is really hard, and so you need to have someone who's capable and charismatic enough to get other people to join their cause without uh, you know money as an incentive. Uh, a lot of times it's just based on pure belief in the vision alone that they have to get them involved. So you're looking for sort of some of these personality characteristics as much as you're looking at things like, you know, size of the market opportunity, uh, com the competitive set that's also out in the world, like how hard will it be for them to break through the noise? How much money will it cost them 
to bring the startup to life. Because ultimately, even if you get that first round of funding, you have to have a strong belief that they'll continue to get other rounds of funding in order to make the startup go. So those are some of the things, some of them, you know, kind of mesh together with that gut instinct about how you feel about the founder. And, and some of them are, you know, a little bit more factual, but at the end of the day, pitching is about persuading somebody to do something. So it, it is really important to make that emotional connection. So I'm looking for that as well. I'm looking to be moved by okay. the pitch. Well, there's a several things I want to pick up from that answer. One is, yeah, I absolutely agree with you about the confidence factor because there's lots of elements that are going to have to get determined as they emerge. As my father said, who worked at 3M, you know, the customers will tell you what business you're in and, and you do have to make adjustments. But here in, in Minneapolis-St. Paul, because of James Hill, the railroad magnet, we have the James Hill Library. And I did one time go down and watch uh, some people pitching, given my facial coding expertise, knowing uh, what emotions people are revealing on their faces. And I, I have to tell you, there was a couple of people who just sank themselves. The confidence factor was not there. One guy, I was just making hash marks on my piece of paper every time he showed a fear expression in, in response to uh, a VC <laughs> question. It, it, it did not go well. But you well, mentioned another that, thing that I yeah. see that, like, sort of, sort of like that, is when founders get super defensive yes. um, about their startup. So let's say somebody's asking them questions you know, really just trying to understand more and, and trying to dig in with the founder a little bit. And then the founder becomes really defensive. That's another signal to me that that is not somebody that I would really want to work with because um, there are a whole host of reasons why, but mostly because it, it, it then ends up, you know, being a level of um, insecurity there probably and, and, and an unwillingness to build on other people's ideas, which also is very important. Yeah, no, that is important. Uh, my father-in-law ran a private equity fund, and he said that the qualities he was looking for was certainly trustworthiness and uh, mm -hmm. that hard work, enthusiasm. But the third one, which I think you're alluding to here, is were they coachable? Right. Coachability is such a huge factor. In fact, we've done so many research studies that kind of looked at this idea of coachability, and it, it really bears out to be true the founders that are more coachable tend to raise more money, tend to be more successful with their startups, tend to encourage others to talk about their startup to other people having that kind of ripple effect. So coachability is a factor in a lot of the decision making that investors and mentors do at the earliest stages. Okay. And you mentioned personality credentials or, or personality character, rather. Um, I imagine you know about the f big five factor traits of openness, conscientiousness, uh, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, which you could flip and call emotional resilience. Uh, based on your own instincts and what you've seen, do some of those stand out to you more than others? Sure. I mean, emotional resilience, I think, is a, is a big one. You're going to get told a million times no. You're <laughs> going to be told, you know, either from a sales perspective or an investor perspective that you're wrong. Um, lots of times you have to have that emotional resilience to take the feedback, you know, do something with it, value it, whatever. You don't necessarily have to act on it, but you have to be able to take it in and, and process it and value it from the person that's giving it to you. And that takes a lot of emotional re resilience, I think. Um, you, you can't get caught up in the ego part of that. You can't get caught up in um, feeling bad that somebody doesn't like what you're building. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, you know, the, the ego part was really my next question uh, framed slightly differently, but I, I'm glad you mentioned that because it does seem important to me. You want on one hand, they have all this energy, enthusiasm, and confidence in themselves, but they also have to 
have that delicate uh, balancing act of being open to others. So you mentioned in the pitch that you want to take the audience on a hero's journey, but you make the point that it's the audience that should feel like it's the hero, right. not the presenter. Uh, I can imagine a good deal of your coaching involved trying to get them to broaden the lens, as it were. Yes, yes. That's an, a great point. And it is a very difficult balance for a lot of founders, particularly because most people aren't used to storytelling that way. It's not something that you're, comes naturally to, to many people. Um, and particularly what I've seen with technical founders or, or people that are, you know, maybe more introverted. And I don't mean to say that they can't get there. They absolutely can. But there's this element of, you know, telling a story and letting it unfold and building drama and, you know, heightening people's emotions around the problem that are really important. Uh, for people to feel something in that moment. And as I said before, because pitching is about persuasion, you really need to make them feel something. And so that hero's journey model is really a good way to track a story. You know, you're rising drama, things are at their worst and, and in comes the solution to solve the problem. It, it, it tracks really well to also developing that emotional ride that you should be taking people on as um you're telling them your problem solution statement. Okay. Well, in fact, yes, emotions are important because emotion and motivation are linked. So talking of persuasion, uh, also, if you don't make that emotional connection, it's not going to be memorable. Uh, yes. You know, the, the, the hippocampus, our memory device, sits in the more emotionally oriented part of the brain. So you mentioned in storytelling, and there's lots of ways to look at this, but maybe one simple demarcation is sometimes you're advocating for the origin story. You know, why did this whole thing start? Or sometimes it's more maybe the the mission, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. Have you found that certain uh, sectors, certain types of personalities uh, do better in one of those two uh, options than the other? No, I don't think it would be something you could really categorize that way. I think it's much more which is a better story for you personally okay. as a sure. founder. Um, but I think whichever one is more memorable, as you just mentioned, is probably the better one to go with because our brains love stories and our brains remember stories. And so you really want to come at it with, you know, whichever one is going to be more memorable, both for the reasons that it's more engaging for your audience, but again, it also helps them tell your story to other people, which has that ripple effect of getting more and more people involved with your cause. And and hopefully some glimmers of your personality and the stick to itness that's going to make the uh, investment make sense. Yeah, sure. sure. So let's go into your 4H framework. Seems to me that's certainly part of the, the key to the book. And you mentioned there's four elements naturally. It's a 4H framework, uh, the headline, the heart, the head and hope. Um, why don't you take us through each of those? And I know that could lead to a fairly long answer. So let's maybe just do uh, the first two, and then we'll we'll move to the back two. So let's start with headline and heart. Sure. So I created the 4-H framework because I wanted people to have a very um, easy way to flow out their pitch in their talk track. So it's really meant for your talk track because you're not always going to have a set of slides when you're pitching. So it really, it's meant to map to your talk track, but you can map the slides to your talk track so it inevitably becomes linked. Uh, so, and it was easy to remember, well, worst thing you can do is read a script of your pitch to people or, or to feel like you've memorized it because memorizing a pitch 
only leads to bad things. You will get confused, you'll lose your place, you won't remember um, where you're supposed to be next. But if you have this kind of framework that sort of divides the whole thing into sections, you can just remember what section you're in and that will allow you to track back to where you're supposed to be. So the headline is meant to ground your audience. It's really just this five to nine word phrase at the beginning of your talk that helps people understand the industry that you're talking about, maybe what's unique about your company, your value proposition, what's special um, that you're going to talk about. So it's meant to set the context, but it's also meant to intrigue. The hard part is meant to be your storytelling section where you're really trying to engage their emotions. You're getting them to care about the problem and want to know, you know, at the edge of their seat, uh, what's going to solve that problem. So the heart is really meant to engage their their heart and help, help them start to feel something about the problem, tell them why they should care. Okay. And then the head goes into um, all those very analytical, straightforward, how it works kinds of questions that you should answer in a pitch. And then the hope is your big finish. The hope is meant to leave people with a bigger vision about how you want to transform the world. So up until that point, you're really talking about what you're working on right now and kind of where it's going, you know, three years out. But the hope is like where it's going 10 years from now, when it's this massive success, what has happened to the world? What has changed in the world because your startup exists and to really inspire people to want to, to jump on the, this, crazy entrepreneurial ride with you. Sure. So you mentioned in the book that the the head section would be uh, quite possibly, say, maybe about seven slides and the other ones before it, uh, just two or three slides. So how long do you think an ideal pitch runs before you get into the Q&A? And how much of that time is devoted to the, the head part? The head part is going to be the longest section, just by virtue of the fact that there's a lot of details that people want to know once you've engaged them in the problem. So Pitches run many different lengths. I, typically, an investor pitch is going to be about 12 slides with an appendix, and it's going to be you know, maybe 15 minutes. Um, any more than that, you're sort of going in too far because typically, this is going to be your first meeting with someone or, or maybe your second meeting with someone. And what I tell entrepreneurs all the time is the goal is just to get them to ask questions, get them to ask you back for another meeting. The goal isn't to explain absolutely everything in that pitch. It's It's got to be, um, you know, setting the stage for the next step. And so I tell entrepreneurs not to get flustered if you get interrupted in your pitch, because that's a good sign that they are engaged with what you're, they're hearing. And if it, if you get interrupted and it kind of goes off into a conversation, that's awesome. And you should be excited about that, not flustered that your pitch has been interrupted. Okay. So I, I have to think besides the thousand plus and many more than a thousand now pitches that you've uh, taken in, uh, I would be very surprised if you haven't watched at least one episode of Shark Tank. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any any takeaways from from watching those pitches and maybe even the personalities of the uh, of the, the people on the show? Well, Shark Tank is such a funny thing, right? Because it, it is edited and cut to do a certain amount of, um, you know, affecting the audience as well. So there's a lot you don't see that happens. But I do think that Shark Tank can be helpful to entrepreneurs when they hear the kinds of questions that the sharks ask the entrepreneurs. So it's not so much the pitch that I think is all that interesting, although many of them do um, some storytelling, which is effective, uh, but more so the, 
looking at the questions and listening to the questions the sharks ask is very representative of some of the major set of questions you will likely get asked in your own pitch. So being ready for those kinds of questions can really be helpful. I tell a lot of entrepreneurs that practicing your Q&A is just as important as practicing your formal pitch because the Q&A part is really where you can be your authentic self. You can show them how thoughtful you are, you're thinking on your feet, um, and you're, you know, demonstrating that you're coachable. So there are all these other things going on during the Q&A. So it's helpful to have an understanding of what questions you might get asked and be ready to answer them in a really smart, thoughtful way. Yeah, no, in many ways, I think the Q&A is the opportunity to shine because I want to see if the person's adaptable. Um, so I've watched a lot of Shark Tank as well, and and uh, maybe you'll be surprised, maybe you won't. Using facial coding with the sound off, in some cases, I've tried to figure out whether or not I thought the, uh, the uh, entrepreneur was going to get you know, some, some bids, some offers for funding. Mm-hmm. And I'm about, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I'm going to say about 85% accurate. And uh, so one of the things I, I, I'm just kind of, this is the, the trivial gossipy side of things, but Mark Cuban really goes for the head type of questions. There are certain things he likes in advance. And I can always tell if Cuban's going to back off because he'll show a disgust expression. Yes. Uh, his upper lip will flare, for instance. Uh, there's other people like Barbara. She she will kind of show fear or, or like surprise, like that's really your answer. Um, so they, they have different kinds of quirks that will give away that they're unlikely to be on board. But it's, it is well edited. And uh, I've watched far more episodes than I probably should have. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's pulled me in. So I want to go someplace else that's quite important and, and quite shocking. And I knew some of these stats, but... Uh, still, they are overwhelming. And I'm talking about bias here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that women own 38% of all businesses in America, they get 2% of the venture funding. Uh, my God. So how do you particularly help them? Because I would love to get that percentage higher. Um, do you ever do sessions trying to educate the, the venture capitalists to uh, you know jo- join the modern world? Right. It, that's a, a sorry, sorry statistic. Um, and it's frustrating because there is quite a lot of bias in the current, um, venture capital system. Um, and it's mostly unconscious. I I like to believe that 99% of it is unconscious. There's probably a a small percent that isn't. Uh, and it's a lot of it is just because how the venture capital system has grown up, right? It's been, you know, people from certain universities make up the bulk of the venture capitalists in the world. And the bulk of the venture capitalist world are white men. And so just the way the brain works and pattern matching and, and phenomenons like homophily, where people want to invest in people like them, you know, like, like, likes, like, um, they'll see something that is different than them, you know, whether it's someone of a different race or a gender, and it will, it, it will unconsciously kind of knock them off their game. Their gut won't feel right. And a lot of early stage investors, again, are, are working on some level of gut. And yep. so that bias tends to rear its head because they're, they're pattern matching of what they've seen work well before. And if they haven't seen, people of color or women do a great job running startups, then they don't, um, you know, it's not as easy for them to get it. And the truth is, is this happens whether or not the venture capitalist is a white male or a white female, it happens. 
Um, and that's why I believe it's very, very unconscious. But we do have to work specifically on this with people of color and entrepreneurs that are women identifying because it is something that does come up. Usually in the Q&A section, you can start to listen for some of that biased questioning and you have to be knowledgeable about that so that you can switch your answers. So I call it spot it and switch it. Spot that biased question and switch it to something that is not you know, related to your gender or your race, but more up, about growth and opportunity and really painting this wonderful picture of the startup that's going to change the world. Okay. Um, well, I think that's commendable work. I mean, it's just an appalling statistic. And you also mentioned black startup founders get 1% of U.S. venture capital, regardless of gender. So there's a lot of room for improvement. Now, I have a friend who works extensively with venture capitalists and grumbles that they are, uh, to his mind, surprisingly conformist, that they have a herd mentality. Um, have you seen that as well? I've seen that in the to the extent that founders that are able to create that FOMO about investing in their company tend to get a lot of sort of hurting of VCs their way. So in the process of raising capital, if you can create a sense of scarcity and a sense of, you know, this is your moment, then uh, and get one you know, notable venture capitalists to jump on board or say something great about you, they, they do tend to listen to what each other says. Um, I think that's changing more and more as information's becoming more democratized. There are lots of ways to learn about startups. It isn't so much that the same venture capitalists are seeing all the same deals. So I think that will change a little bit, but it, there there is some of that tendency in there. Okay. So you, you mentioned that uh, a lot of these venture capitalists, at least to date, have tended to come from the same universities, for instance. Uh, you make a point that you should know your audience. Do you have tips uh, for anyone who's wooing whoever in terms of uh, how you can look at their bio, their background, and find some points of leverage and points of connection that you've seen be successful? Yes. Knowing your audience making a personal connection with them if you can, having an understanding of their perspective, maybe their biases about the industry that you're talking about. Um, that is so important to helping your pitch land with impact. It can make all the difference in the world if you are able to speak to them personally because you know what they've invested in before, or you know what nonprofits they are connected to because they care about a certain cause, or you know something you know, maybe it's just something as simple as you both grew up in rural towns or you both um, have a passion for um, football. Those kinds of things can just start an easy, easier conversation, a warm up um, where they start to get to see you. They know you've done some research on them. They expect you to check them out before you meet with them. And if they at all sense that you did not do your homework and you did not do research on them to make a personal connection, that will be a negative um, in their opinion of your approach to the pitch. So knowing your audience. So, you know, in a one on one situation, you're going to want to understand who that person is. Personally, there's lots of ways to find that out. LinkedIn, their social media, other people who have pitched to them before, all that stuff. <laughs> Um, if you're pitching to a group in a, you know, in a pitch competition or you're, you're making a presentation to a larger group, understand something about that larger group. Where, you know, where are they coming from? What's their perspective? What's their incentive for being in the room at all? 
Um, all those kind of things can help you pitch with more confidence. Yes. And it can also help your pitch land with more impact. Yeah, more emotional hook, some some connection there. Um, no, I thought that was really important. I was thinking back to when I was finishing my PhD and one of my tennis buddies also finishing the program at the same time had merely one interview at Washington College on the eastern shore of Maryland. And I said, Wendell, so uh, have you have you prepped? Have you read up about the college? And to my amazement, he said, no. I said, well, you're really lucky, Wendell, because I had two friends who went there. So I'm, I'm going to do your homework for you by giving you a little information. But I, I was shocked. Um, speaking of the kind of the the sense of the room and uh, you know what's their mission and why this group if it's if it's multiple people, have you finally seen any differences uh, from around the country? So you're in Boston, but obviously a lot of venture capitalists are historically in Silicon Valley. Have you seen a different mentality from Boston to New York to to California, for instance? Well, I think there's some industry expertise that's geographically based. So I think there are clusters of investors in certain industries, you know, fintech, very much clustered in New York City. Uh, Boston's pretty well known for biotech. San Francisco had been known for a long time for consumer tech or social tech. Um, but I think that's changing. And I think if the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us that people can live anywhere they want and be successful where and wherever they want and, and still reach out to the people they need to make their companies successful. So I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more startups coming out of non-traditional hubs of entrepreneurial activity. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I think that's a great thing. Okay, well, that actually makes me think of one more question before we get to the close here. Uh, in the age of Zoom, uh, any tips or warnings regarding uh, if you make the pitch virtually? Yeah, it's funny because my book came out right in, you know, sort of the height of things in, in early May. People were locked down and the entire startup world was panicking. You know, what's going to happen? How am I going to get investment? People were in the middle of raising rounds and and you know, it was, it was really general panic. And I think, I, ha I don't know this for a fact, but I, I'm pretty sure that if you look at the statistics, funding did not slow down at all. It sure didn't feel like it did um, during the pandemic. In fact, it may have sped up in some sectors. And so people were finding a way to reach venture capitalists and raise money by pitching online. Um, so I did a lot of talking about pitching online. And I think a couple things really matter when you're pitching online. One is making sure you're making eye contact with the people on the other side by looking right at the lens. Um, it feels awkward, but that's the only way you can really speak to someone eye to eye um, in this environment. The second thing is stand up. Um, don't sit when you're pitching online, stand up so you can use your body and convey a little bit more energy. You know, because you're online, you don't have that same kind of energy to work a room. So if you stand up, you can breathe better you know, your diaphragm's open, you can breathe better, you can speak longer with a breath, and then you can move around a little. The top half of your body can move around a little. Now, don't be like spastic and, and <laughs> moving your arms around. That's not what I mean at all. But sure. trying to convey a little physical energy through the lens is really important. And then certainly your backdrop matters. I um, saw a pitch um, not too long into the pandemic where the pitcher had his dirty laundry basket in the background. And obviously he didn't know that. And obviously we all have dirty laundry, but I don't want to see it in the background of the pitch. And so just be really conscious of what's in your background and, and how it's being seen by uh, other folks who are watching. 
Okay, well, that makes me think of the uh, somewhat amazing story that uh, Bill Gates gave a pitch where he, he was apparently stoned uh, when he gave the pitch. And so someone told me recently that uh, in a meeting, it was not a pitch meeting, that they could see their boss's bong on the shelf behind his desk. Nice. Um, so th- that told you a bit more than maybe that boss wanted to share. Yeah, exactly. Regarding I mean, their lifestyle, yes. Yeah, I mean, inanimate objects can say a lot about a founder. So just make sure that your setting is is saying what you want it to say about you. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Debbie, so much. This has been episode number 59, uh, Pitch Perfect, Stand Out When You Speak Up. Uh, my guest, Debbie Kleiman, she is the author of First Pitch, Winning Money, Mentors, and More for Your Startup. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes in the series by going to my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network and under the special series programming, uh, you will find my podcast. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, Given today's topic, I found this quote from Tom Preston Werner. He is the co-founder of GitHub. He said, when I am old and dying, I plan to look back on my life and say, wow, that was an adventure, not wow, I sure felt safe. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. (laughs) 